0: Our story begins in 1913 on the shores of Lake Victoria. A man named Onyango Dunde is reclining on the beach, completely unaware that his life is about to change forever. There is a violent splash in the water and he sees a giant serpent rise and rise and rise until his head stands above the clouds. Onyango is too afraid to run or even scream. He stands frozen even as the serpent's head comes crashing down and swallows him whole. Surprisingly, the serpent spits him out, afraid and confused, but unharmed. This was simply its way of getting his attention. As Onyango watches, the serpent speaks. It says, I am the god Mumbo, whose two homes are in the sun and in the lake. I have chosen you to be my mouthpiece. Go out and tell all Africans that from henceforth their god. You are hereby informed that everybody is requested to stay at home. There should be no movement in town. The government has now been taken over by the military until further notice. Welcome to the Kenyan Experiment, a journey through Kenyan history. Welcome to the third and final installment of the Forms of Protest series, Forms of Protest Part 3, The Serpent God of Lake Victoria. It's been an interesting journey getting here, and I'm somewhere between anxious and excited to be wrapping up the first series of this podcast and moving on to another chapter. But before we get there, there's one more kind of protest I want to explore, and that's the role of religion in protest. So, let's get started. Onyango Dunde is the first prophet of Mumbo. The serpent God sends him with a message for his people. It tells him, Those whom I choose personally, and all those who acknowledge me, will live forever in plenty. Their crops will grow of themselves, and there will be no more need to work. I will cause cattle, sheep, and goats to come up out of the lake in great numbers to those who believe in me. But all unbelievers and their families and cattle will die out. The Christian religion is rotten, and so is its practice of making its believers wear clothes. My followers must let their hair grow, never cutting it. Their clothes shall be the skins of goats and cattle, and they must never wash. All Europeans are your enemies, but the time is shortly coming when they will all disappear from our country. This new religion, Mumboism, is fascinating as a form of protest, because in some ways it made for a truly challenging opponent to the colonialists. They initially just didn't know what to do with it, because when it came down to it, Mumboism didn't actively encourage violent or even really outright rebellion. It simply stipulated that Europeans would be driven from the land, it was a prophecy, and the god Mumbo would take care of it. There was no need for the people's intervention. And the interesting part of this is, is that it allowed it to function very similarly to the colonial method. You see, the colonialists appealed to two centres of power. They either invoked the power of the king, or the power of the Christian god. Things that Africans came to learn to view with a sense of frightful awe. They couldn't be seen, but it was understood that, through their agents, they could strike with deadly force or give great rewards. Mumbo followed this template somewhat. It was an overpowering force who offered great rewards if you stayed close to his prophets, or punishments if you did not. It all comes down to the power dynamics. For example, something that often doesn't get that much attention is the fact that across the continent, the first adherents of Christianity were often people already on the margins of African society. You have your junior wives, slaves, the disabled, and anyone who didn't have much power, or the hopes of getting this power. Association with Christianity, it gave them a new measure of opportunity and in exchange, the missionaries asked for fealty and labor. Now, having converted to Christianity, they were free to evangelize and build their own networks and hierarchies in which they came out on top of other Africans. On the government side, a similar process was happening with chiefs, headmen, and other classes of collaborators filling these roles. In many areas, people who rose to become chiefs did not have any previous claim to such a position or any traditional means to achieve it. So whether through the Christian missions or the government, both were extremely good ways to advance socially or economically, and this method was critical to the original spread of colonialism and how it accumulated allies. This process wasn't all smooth. Having two centers of power inevitably led to clashes. The mission boys, as they were sometimes called, would sometimes end up in conflict with the chiefs and the headmen. In South Mugirango, this conflict escalated to such a degree that some of the mission boys in their attempts to depose a chief would even turn to poison and witchcraft, a fact which really underscores how little their conversion had to do with religion. While the chief would remain, they would succeed in actually killing a colonial headman. All this is the set ground for how Mumboism was received. Both the government and the Christian mission's African agents, despite their differences, saw it as a shared threat. In fact, they were the most zealous informants to the administration of Mumboist activities. This is because chiefs and mission boys required followers to cement their authority and gain favour with their overlords. The Mumboist adepts were doing the same thing, only instead of reporting to the British, they reported to the Great Serpent. The more Mumboists there were, the less followers were available for British agents profits of Mumbo were competition and they were selling a future that the British agents could not truly match. With all that in mind, then, it's not surprising that the first actions against Mumboists would be initiated by African agents. A combination of the religious leaning Africans and the government representatives would take action. In South Kavirondo, a Seventh day Adventist named Okelo Yugi and his fellow converts would start to ingratiate themselves with the local headman. While the headman would later deny that he had given any express orders, the SDA team would try to violently recruit Moonboys for government roadwork. The Moomboists would claim that Oyugi had tried to use them to do work on his own property. An investigation was carried out and it seriously called into account the truth and validity of the story given by the SDA adherents and the headman. But it was ignored. The district commissioner would have the Moonboys whipped. Mumboism preached overcoming cataclysm for Europeans and those who supported them or took up their ways. Some said that all water would be turned to blood and only Mumbois would have something to drink. Others, the Whites and those who wore European clothing would have their arms severed and be turned into monkeys. Others still that a strange tribe called the Abachi would arise from the lake and with sharp blades each kill 20 Europeans. Mumboys would not only survive, they would be greatly rewarded. The idea of picking the trappings of government or European religion and government structures to form movements was not something that was restricted to Mumboism. In Kitui, an organization calling itself Serikali would come up and have its own structures that included headmen. In central Kavirondo, there would be a gang under the name of a man calling himself King and having a structure of governors provincial commissioners, district commissioners, and even police under him. And perhaps one of the most successful attempts, a man named John Owalo would claim that God had spoken to him and asked him to start his own religion. It caused a lot of controversy, but in the end, the Nyanza provincial commissioner would authorize him to start his own mission because he wasn't challenging the government order in any overt way that they could prove. John Owalo would found the Nomiya Luo Church, meaning the Luo Church that was given to me, and proclaim himself a prophet. He would reject the divinity of Christ and build his own school that would operate without missionary or overt colonial interference. In his lifetime, the church would have over 10,000 adherents, and it still exists to this day. What set Mumboism apart was that it leaned more heavily into an African mythos and was an extremely flexible religion adapting to circumstances almost on the fly. It's this flexibility which, though it started with a lure, allowed it to spread like wildfire among the Kisi. So as Onyango Dunde's fame grew, five men would make a pilgrimage to visit him and pay tribute. They would later also say that they had experiences with the serpent speaking to them and calling them to serve. The experiences, unlike Onyango's, would happen in dreams and visions. They became priests of Mumbo and would be in high demand as witch doctors, with people ascribing various powers to them, including the ability to raise the dead. One of these men was Mosi Auma from Kabondo. He would rise to a level of prominence by becoming the one who would expand the Gospel of Mumbo and take it to the Kisi. In 1914, World War I will break out and Kenya will be drawn into the fray. The colonies have an option to stay neutral but they will choose not to exercise it. Throughout the war, the people of Nyanza will carry one of the heaviest burdens in the colony. They will provide the most porters to the front lines of the war effort. And in September 1914, troops from German East Africa will land in Karungu in Homa Bay and begin their march to Kisi. After the World War, uptake of Mumboizim would increase for the next few years. The war created a new perception of Europeans, especially in Nyanza where recruitment for the war was at an all-time high. Porters from Kavirondo would be a major feature on the front lines, with the British soldiers amiably referring to them as Omera. The British administrator, John Ainsworth, would even say, quote, A very large portion of the responsibility for producing porters fell on Nyanza province. It can be said with truth that they helped win the war. End quote. In fact, some of the British war songs recognise their contribution, an example being the following. The lyrics are, The Lindy road was dusty, and the Lindy road was long, But the chap what did the hardest graft, and the chap what did the most wrong, Was the Cavi Rondo Potter, with his Cavi Rondo song. It was Potter, Harper. it was Omera, he git, And Omera didn't grumble, he simply did his bit. While the songs may have praised the Kavirondo porter, the cost on the ground was extremely high. Of 165,000 African porters, 50,000 lost their lives. A high number made more tragic because it was unnecessary. Sir Philip Mitchell, the colonial administrator, who would later become the governor in Kenya, wrote, A large number died on service. A larger number than that service justified. For though there were exceptions... The feeding and care of the porters and protection against excessive loads were seldom of an adequate standard. End quote. Many died because of mistreatment. But something else the war accomplished was that it dented the myth of British superiority. Not only did Africans notice the unnecessary losses they endured, they also noted the hypocrisy. The British had long decried inter-tribal war as savage and primitive and the kind of thing that they came to save Africans from. But no war between Africans had been as horrible as what they witnessed in World War I between Europeans. And no reason had been provided about why this was any different from what they had so recently scoffed at among Africans. The years following this would see far more resistance from the law than had previously been witnessed. But among the Kisi, is where Mumboism would truly begin to take off. Initially, Mumboism hadn't really taken root among the Kisi. They had the prophecy, the teachings, but largely they were indifferent. It wasn't their religion. But when the war broke out and it was learnt that the Germans were marching to Kisi, the British evacuated immediately. This unexpected turn of events gained Mosi Auma a great deal of credibility as a prophet. Some of the British had fled so quickly that they left their dinner unfinished on the tables. When it was verified that they were really gone, the Kisi took it as a sign that Mosioma had actually been correct and that the prophecy was coming true. They looted buildings, burned down others, and occupied formerly British homes. So convinced were they that this was the end of the British domination that even Chief Nyamwamu, Chief of Nyaribari location, took part in the looting. When the German troops arrived, the Kisi welcomed them. At this point, the British had already sent companies of the King's African Rifles to combat the Germans from Kiricho and Uganda. Now, the Kisi had already clashed with the British twice in 1905 and 1908 and been brought down with overwhelming force. But watching them against the Germans, the British didn't seem quite so invincible. They watched Europeans kill Europeans. One can only imagine how this must have emboldened the prophecy. Some of the interpretations of the foretelling spoke about a strange tribe sent by Mumbo to chase the Europeans. So witnessing different groups of them fight each other must have had some poetic symmetry. Europeans would be their own downfall. But as this battle went on, there was a little bit of an intelligence problem with the Germans. They didn't have an accurate count of British troops and their movements. So, they overestimated the position of the British and they failed to press their advantage and decided to withdraw from Kisi town after taking losses. When the British finally regrouped and returned, they found the Germans already gone. Upon learning that the Kisi had looted and sacked the town, they turned their wrath on them instead. They would steal their cattle, burn homesteads, and eventually execute suspects. When the Kisi retaliated, their warriors were mowed down without mercy. The British considered this another complete victory over the Kisi. What they didn't know was that the seeds of this new religion had only just started growing. As Mumboism spread to Kisi, it would morph to suit the population. The Kisi prophet Sakawa, who had foretold the coming of the white man, would be incorporated into the mythos. Sakawa had mysteriously vanished after a spirited drink-up in 1902, never to be seen again. His return became an important part of the Mumboist creed for some of the Kisi. It was said that his return would darken the skies before the Europeans were kicked out. I personally find Sakawa to be a particularly interesting prophet. Mysteriously disappearing after drinking a lot is not exactly a common origin story for prophets. But he kind of fits the M.O. of some Mumboists, While it's difficult to sift apart what is just British propaganda and the truth, what seems certain is the Mumboists loved a good party. The cattle given as tribute to priests would be used for feasts. There was plenty of all-night dancing, alcohol and marijuana use. So Sakawa, a prophet who loved his bottle, would certainly have fit right in. Now, the agents of the British watched the spread of Mumboism with great concern. As we say before, its very nature eroded their power but they were also worried for more immediate reasons. One, Mumboizim was discouraging people from working, which affected their labour requirements. Secondly, a lot of Mumboizim's teachings tended to attack them directly as agents of the Europeans. By 1918, in Getutu Kisi, the chief Onsongo and his assistant, Aoga were getting concerned at the rate Mumboizim was growing. Over 200 heads of cattle had been given to the Mumboist priests. Some adherents had started to wear special cloaks, insignia, and taking up low headdress. The influence of the priests could no longer be denied. So the chief rounded up 68 followers and took them to the district commissioner, a man named Campbell. The DC tried to send them all to work outside of the district, but the order was later reversed by the provincial commissioner because it was illegal. But this just shows how jittery things were getting in the district. By 1919, the administration was actively keeping a list of prominent Mumbo priests and personalities. In 1920, Chief Fonsongo would bring a lady called Bonareri before the district commissioner. She had been asking the chief to give her permission to start a new school that would teach people that they needed to respect the dead or the dead would come back to life. Chief Fonsongo was suspicious of her actual intentions and D.C. Campbell agreed. He told him to keep an eye on her in case she showed any signs of mumboism, The very next month, Campbell would report that she had gathered a small group of followers and was teaching a form of mumboism that incorporated marijuana smoking. Extremely concerned, the DC would break this up. But the very next month, Bonareri had started a school where she taught that Sakawa would return and that the white people would leave and the black man was going to rule himself. These teachings and Bonareri herself were rising in popularity. District Commissioner Campbell would report to the administration that practically the entire location went to her school. This is where the administration truly started to take the matter seriously. They cracked down hard. Many of Bonariri's followers would be arrested, making use of the abuse of opiates ordinance. For Bonariri herself, they lined up a medical officer to declare her insane and commit her to a government mental hospital. Because the administration had encountered problems with the Kisi three times already, they decided to be extremely thorough. Prominent Mumbois were exiled to Lamu, including Bonareri's husband and son. The prophet Sakawa's sons were put under watch. The children of Kisi resistance figures like Morawangiti were harassed, and for good measure, Onyango Dunde, the first prophet of Mumbo, was also exiled to Lamu. While Moonboism seemed to have been stopped, its story was far from over. The first flare had simply been the serpent's bite, and now the poison was slowly working through the system and about to make its presence felt. Moonboyism seemed to have been stopped in its tracks and for a while it was. For a number of years there really wasn't much movement. But then in 1927, a number of Kisi adepts and elders started to discourage people from doing communal roadwork. They argued that the Europeans would all be leaving shortly and thus there would be no need for these roads. So, why participate? Mumbo was finally coming for them. Now, this version of Mumboism had some teeth as far as the administration was concerned because it actively told people not to do certain kinds of communal labor. It also insisted that no one should pay more than three shillings in taxes. And in Getutu, Assistant Chief Aoga found himself in a troubling and somewhat hilarious situation. A new prophecy started going around and it stated that the Great Serpent was coming to destroy all chiefs but Aoga in particular. And I imagine being condemned by name in a prophecy that's sweeping across the population is not an enviable position. Of more concern to the British, the prophecy also stated that the leader of the sect was eventually going to occupy the district commissioner's house. Such a blatant challenge of colonial authority could not be allowed to stand. The administration cracked down immediately. The sect's leaders were rounded up and an inquiry was formed. It recommended their deportation and they were exiled to Kipini at the coast. Their followers were also moved to more easily supervised homes and headmen were instructed to find them employment designed to prevent idleness and rubble-rousing. This also worked for a while. There was a lull, but Mumboism proved to be a bit more stubborn than the administration had anticipated. In 1931, there was another resurgence. A locust invasion descended upon Nyanza, and people came to believe that the Mumboists had power over it. Their numbers started to swell, and so did the number of tributes people would give to them. Once again, they advised people against paying full taxes and started to hold public barazas, a preserve of chiefs and colonial officers. The chiefs in Getutu and Muksero tried to contain this new wave of Mumboism, but in the end, they couldn't really do it. It wasn't until 1933 that the matter truly came to a head. During a sports meet, Mumboists were in the crowd of thousands, but the British administration failed to detect them. In exasperation, every single Kisi and Luo chief joined a delegation and confronted the district commissioner with their increasing concerns about the Moomboists. They told him that not only had the Moomboists been present at the games but that they had been carrying spears and swords. The DC finally understanding the gravity authorized the arrest of 200 Moonboists who had been having a feast and a dance since the previous night. In the subsequent trial, the chiefs were only too happy to stand as witnesses and give evidence to personally ensure that this matter was settled. This final crackdown was thorough and ruthless. Mumboism would never truly recover. Mumboism would officially be banned in 1954, stemming from fears that in the face of the Mau Mau resistance, Another resurgence could be catastrophic. The last of the Mumboists, one Mzeangwenyi, would pass away in the early 90s. He was still living in Kisi town where a district commissioner had ordered him to move. He was obstinately waiting for the age of Mumbo to come about. As a form of protest, Mumboism shows this thing I've been trying to highlight with this series that protest did not come in one shape or form, and different variations existed and agitated the colonial administration. District Commissioner Campbell would say this of the religion quote, Mumboism is politically dangerous and has therefore to be dealt with severely. Otherwise, there is a possibility of the events which occurred in Blantnare, British Central Africa, being repeated here. End quote. He was referring to the Chilembwe uprising, a rebellion led by John Chilembwe, an African reverend in what is now Malawi, that shook the British Empire. For some years in the early 30s, Mumboism halted effective administration in the region. In the words of District Commissioner Buxton, quote, Mumbo adepts have all intrigued against the authority of the chiefs and headmen and deliberately hindered them in carrying out their duties by insults and threats and claiming greater powers. End quote. While not ultimately successful, the fact that fears around the Mammo Rebellion led to its banning tells us that it certainly had the potential to be so and the colonial administration knew it. Over the years many explanations have been offered for Mumbo that the snake was borrowed from older Luo myths or that the inspiration for the great serpent was the water spouts that can sometimes be seen on Lake Victoria. There are swirling columns of air mist and water reaching from low hanging clouds and down to the waters. Regardless of the origin Mumboism was a very real threat to the colonial administration and yet another entry in the varying protests that Africans registered in the quest for freedom. That's it for today's episode and for the Forms of Protest series. Join us next time for an entirely new series. You've been listening to The Kenyan Experiment.